All right. So today, uh, we're in the sixth chapter of Mark again, if you want to turn there. Mark chapter 6, working our way from start to finish down through the gospel of Mark. As you see there on the screen, we're up to verse 30 of chapter 6. This is the account of one of the most famous miracles that Jesus performed while he was on the earth. In fact, if you didn't know this, it is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's mentioned in all four Gospels. And there's a lot for us to see and learn and meditate on here in these 14 verses. That's why you see up there that this is part one. We're going to split this up into two two messages and cover it in two parts. So this is part one today. First, let's just read the whole passage all the way through, and then we'll go from there, okay? This is Mark 6, 30 to 44, and... This is the word of the living and true God. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. That's the word of the Lord. Now we're going to get into the actual miracle next time. But there's some things that I want to focus on with you leading up to the miracle. So today we're going to mostly focus on verses 30 to 34. And I just want to point out three things about our Lord Jesus that we see here. Okay? Number one, Jesus empathetically listens. If you look back at verse 7, you'll remember that Jesus sent out his apostles two by two, to do what? They were doing the work of the ministry, right? To preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons in his name. You can get that from verse 7 and verse 13. In our passage in front of us today, it records what happened when they returned 
it says that this is what they did. They told Jesus everything. Verse 30 says they told him all that they had done and taught. Now this is such a simple thing, but I want to remind us of it because the simple things are the things that we most easily forget. They get taken for granted, okay? But here it is. Jesus listens to his people. We have lots of fathers and mothers here today. Um, I wonder if you guys can think back on a time where you sent one of your children away on a trip of some sort. Maybe it was... um, to a summer camp, or maybe it was to a relative's house for the week, or maybe they went on a school trip, maybe they went overseas with a school group, or or maybe they went somewhere closer just overnight with the school somewhere, or maybe they went off to college for several months at a time. Think about that, and then let me ask you, parents, isn't it the joy of your heart to sit down And just listen to your child when they come back. Tell you about everything that happened. Isn't that a joy to a parent's heart? I would even venture to say that the ones here with grown kids, when they call you and they just want to talk to you, you probably eat it up, right? I'm seeing some shaking your head yes. You want to know everything. How's your job going? How's the grandkids doing? How's their school going? You want to know their struggles. You want to know their fears. You want to experience their joys with them. You're their parent. And when your child opens up to you about what's happening in their life, you love it, right? Now, if that's the case with earthly fathers and mothers towards their children, how much more must it be true of our Lord, who cares infinitely more than you or I care for our children? I know that is hard to fathom when you think about how much you love your children, and I love my children dearly. It is hard to fathom, but God's love for us, God's love for his people, absolutely dwarfs our love for our children. There is a kind of love in God for his people that is untouchable and in a totally separate category than any other type of love that you can possibly imagine. And we're, if you think about comparing our love to his, we're sinful people. We're sinful parents. Can I get any hands up that says you're a sinful parent? Just this week, I'm reminded, right? Don't handle everything like I should. But even being sinful parents, we're able to genuinely love our children with a real love, a a caring love, a sacrificial love. But even in there, there's failures, there's sins, there's... Wrong motives in here sometimes. But when you think of the Lord's love, is there any deficiency in his love? None. His love is flawed in no way. God cares deeply for his people. We read it this morning in prayer meeting. What does Peter say? Casting all your cares, all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That is so simple, but so profound. God cares for you. I remember one time what Jesus said um, when he was comparing the parental love and care to God's love and care, which far surpasses ours. Listen to this. Matthew 7 He said, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Even sinners, sinners know how to love and care for our children and give them what they need. And if fallen parents can do that, what must our perfect heavenly Father be like in His care for His children? How much more will He give good things to those who ask Him, He says. Again, our heavenly Father cares for us. And these apostles... They come back from doing this ministry and they're just openly sharing everything with Jesus. This happened, Lord. And then this guy came up and said these things and we went over to this house. These people took us in, just like you said. We stayed there the whole time. Then they wanted to be taught over here. They're just telling him everything. We healed this guy in your name. These demons, they just fled when we said, come out of him in Jesus' name. Everything and no doubt he just attentively listened to everything. And I worded the point here this way, that Jesus empathetically listens. That just means he listens with empathy. If you have empathy towards someone, what do you have? You, you're understanding what they're going through. You're aware of you're sensitive to their feelings and their thoughts and their experiences. Jesus is an empathetic listener. He was empathetic to what they had just gone through. How do we know that? Well, because of how he responds. He didn't say, you know, maybe they shared some struggles that they had along the way because no doubt they did. No doubt they experienced some rejection out there. But he didn't respond, hey, can you get to the point sharing all this with me? Uh, I know you want to tell me everything, but can we sort of wrap this up? You're, you're taking too long. Just cut to the chase. Hurry up, man. <laughs> Says they told him everything. And I, I picture that taking quite some time. He's caring about every word. And we also don't read that he said to them, y'all need to suck it up. I know you went through some hard stuff. Suck it up. Be a man. Get over it. Does he say that? We don't read that he says anything like that. What does he say to them? Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and do what? Rest a while. Come rest. Verse 31. He wants them to rest after what they went through. Does that sound like a person who isn't empathetic to their situation? Jesus is the one who is Jesus is the one who understands all of our situations better than even we do, right? You remember what Hebrew says? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I think much like his apostles come in and they tell him everything, we see the Lord inviting us boldly to come into the throne of grace. As a matter of fact, it's in the very next verse of Hebrews that I just read. He wants us to come and find mercy and help in our time of need. And we, we see that kind of communion with God um, in the Psalms as well. You've read the Psalms, right? Beautiful, beautiful songs of praise and lament and runs the gamut. But we see it over and over again, just the psalmist just pouring out his heart to God, telling him everything, right? Telling God what's happening in here telling God his fears, telling God what was going on around him, telling God his joys, praising God for what he's doing in his world and in creation and, and so forth. That's what we're to be doing, by the way. That's not a psalmist thing. That's a Christian thing. Tell it all to Jesus. 
Give it all to him. Give him your burdens, your joys. Give everything to him. Just lay it on him. And yes, he will give rest to weary pilgrims, thankfully. James says it this way. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James 5.13. Did you notice in that verse that no matter what happens, the response is Godward? When you're suffering, go to God in prayer. When you're cheerful, go to God in praise. Every situation, go to God. The Christian life is a Godward life. Take it to Jesus. That's what we see the apostles doing right here. When they returned from their mission, they came back and they gave him everything. Told it all to him. And he listened empathetically. What a kind Savior. He's got time for people like us. Number two, what does he do? Jesus encourages rest. He encourages rest. We looked at it briefly just a minute ago when we were talking about the empathy thing. But look at it again in verse 31. After Jesus just patiently listens and lovingly hears them, everything they've gone through, what they've done and what they've taught, he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And then we get this little um, kind of explanatory note from Mark that tells us that not only had they been busy out on the road doing ministry together two by two, but even when they got back, there was so much going on that they didn't even have time to eat. For many were coming and going, it says, and they had no leisure even to eat. Let me just say as clear as possible, again, it's a very simple statement, but it's the simple stuff that flies under the radar. Here it is. Jesus wants his people to rest. Rest. Have you figured out yet you're not the energizer bunny? <laughs> you can't keep going and going and going indefinitely without rest. I'm sure you've seen that. Jesus encourages rest. That includes physical rest. Sometimes taking a nap can be the godliest thing you've done all day. Just ask your family when you don't have enough sleep. Have you seen what happens to you when you don't sleep? <laughs> Jesus says, rest. Come, come away and rest a while. And it's, it's kind of fascinating to me to see how Jesus cared for the physical needs of people. Um, he doesn't just care for the spiritual, although we'll get to that in a minute, but he cares for the physical. He says in Matthew 6, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Those are all physical needs, aren't they? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Don't worry about that, he says. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all things. That you need all those things. It's just reassuring to me to know that our physical needs do not escape the eye of our heavenly Father. We saw an explicit example of it, didn't we, back in um, chapter 5, when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, when he, not heals her, when he brings her back from the dead, he says, get her something to eat. He's worried about her, not worried, he's taking care of, his, of her physical needs, right? God cares about our bodies. He made our bodies. There's a whole theology to be explored about our physical bodies, I think. He made us physical creatures, which is actually fascinating in itself, isn't it? Could have made us just disembodied spirits kind of floating around. He didn't, though. He gave us bodies. And he knows the limitations of those bodies. 
Psalm 103.14 says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we're weak people. And when we think about that, our, our limitations, we can think about this. There are many ways that we are not like God. Many ways, right? But one way maybe that we don't think about a lot is we have physical limitations. God has none. One of them, one of our limitations, we need sleep. Does God need sleep? No. He doesn't need rest at all. Our energy runs out. His does not. Some of you, um, some of you may remember Arville Stanley. You remember him? Gentleman who used to attend here many years ago. He was a funny guy, just a character. You'd ask him, how you doing, Brother Arville? He said, well, it's a great life if you don't weaken. That was his statement. <laughs> like, catch you off guard. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. But that's all of us in a post-fall world. We're just constantly weakening, aren't we? Until death. God doesn't do that. God's not on a decline. God is who he is and he hasn't changed ever. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Doesn't need it. Michael Card, one of my favorite songwriters of all time, he wrote an entire album of Christian lullabies. And one of them is called, Even the Darkness is Light to Him. I may have quoted it before. Forgive me if I do it again. It says, Even the darkness is light to him. And night, picture a parent singing this to their baby. Okay? It's a lullaby. Even the darkness is light to him. And night is as bright as the day. So you are safe, though the light grows dim. For even the darkness is light to him. The Father above does not slumber or sleep. He wakefully watches our ways. Then there's no reason for you to weep. The Father above neither slumbers nor sleeps. I love that. We used to let our kids listen to that and it would they loved it too. They would just get real quiet and just listen. When we're sleeping, God is not God never sleeps. He never tires. We do. He knows that we need rest, and Jesus himself is aware of our frame. He has a human body himself, right? He knows what it feels to be tired. He got exhausted in his pre-glorified body. Remember, he's sleeping in the boat, and the boat's probably doing this. He's sound asleep. He's exhausted. He knows what it feels like. But here, when these apostles come back from ministry, he doesn't, encourage his he doesn't encourage those men to just keep going. Push yourselves. Go indefinitely. You don't need rest. Rest is when you die. He doesn't say that. He encourages them to come away a while and rest. Now, we do have to say, we read the passage. You saw it. On this particular occasion, the rest was very short-lived. It was cut short by a very needy crowd, wasn't it? But we do need to see the principle. Jesus encourages his followers to rest. Here's something else we should say when we're talking about rest there. Rest comes after being busy. <laughs> If your life is all rest, that ain't rest, is it? That's just laziness. The scripture has something to say about that, right? Many places. Christians aren't supposed to be lazy people. We're about to be our we're supposed to be about our father's business, right? But in the course of doing that, if we're faithfully doing that, let's not forget that we ain't him and we need rest. And he's okay with that. Now, mostly we've been talking about physical rest so far. What about spiritual rest? 
What is spiritual rest? Anyways, I find it interesting that in the Bible, uh, God compares spiritual nourishment to physical nourishment. Our bodies need, you know, they're physically sustained by physical food, and our inner man is sustained by spiritual food. Our spirit sustained by spiritual food. I believe I quoted this word to you last week, something that Jesus said when he quoted from Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So there's a certain type of nourishment that bread is not going to help with. There's a certain type of nourishment that only God's word can give you. And let me just ask you a question. How spiritually nourished are you right now? How spiritually nourished are you right now? Are you struggling a little bit? It's okay to admit that. I just want you to consider something. Is it because your spiritual gas tank is on E? I'm not saying that's the cause of every spiritual struggle, but it is a possibility that you should consider. Do you find it hard to obey God? Do you find your heart to be hard in in some instances? Is it hard toward other people? Do you find it hard to find a desire to get up and do the things that God has commanded us to do? Do you find it a struggle to evangelize and you know, become more involved in the things that God wants us to be doing for his kingdom. Just consider the possibility. Is it because your spiritual blood sugar is very low? Some of you have diabetes. I won't ask you to raise your hand and embarrass anyone. If you don't have diabetes, you know someone who does, right? Have you ever seen that person or you've experienced it yourself when your sugar drops. Some of you know what that's like. I've seen it a ton of times at the hospital. The person's going to have no energy. They're going to be disoriented. And they're going to need nourishment quickly. Right? I wonder how many Christians are walking around like that. Just in a constantly deprived state. Trying to live the Christian life with a spiritual blood sugar of about 45. (laughs) Just barely able to function, spiritually speaking. I just want us to see, for one thing, from this passage, that part of the rest that Jesus was calling his apostles to would have been a time of spiritual refreshment with him. Jesus encourages rest with him. Come away, he says. Come with me, in other words. Let's go off by ourselves and rest a while. So let's just assess ourselves here. How often do you get spiritual nourishment? And how do you get it? Well, here's how it's done. It's done through communion with God and that's going to involve all of the normal means of grace that God's given to us going to his word daily not just reading it and moving on but meditating on what he said and it's going to include going to the throne of grace daily drawing close to him in worship Being a part of a collective body of believers like this who can teach you and and help you on your journey and so forth. So how much of those things go on in your life? You have to ask yourself that. That's something we all should regularly assess. How is your nourishment? You might go to the doctor. He says, okay, what are you eating? What's your diet like? Maybe spiritually speaking, that's what we should ask ourselves. Man, I'm just feeling... So discouraged and deflated and just don't feel close to the Lord. Okay, brother, sister, what are you eating? What's your nourishment? 
What have you been taking in? Have you been communing with God? It will take communion with God through prayer, Bible meditation, to sustain you in your spiritual walk. And you really don't want to just sustain yourself. You want to allow for growth, right? Even when we're dieting physically, you can eat enough calories just to sustain you or you can eat enough calories to allow your muscles to grow if you're working out, right? So, again, how's the nourishment with you? Are you famished? Something to think about. Um, do you remember when Jesus was, was with Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10? He enters their house and Martha's just busy, busy, busy. Remember that? Distracted with much serving is the exact quote. Distracted with much serving. You say, whoa, I thought serving is a good thing. I thought that's what Jesus wanted us to do. Well, yes, unless you're trying to do it all on your own power without proper communion with him first. So what does Martha's sister do a little different? What does Mary do? It says she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching. And Jesus commended Mary and instructed Martha by saying, here it is, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Luke 10. I wonder which one describes you and I better. Are you Martha? Anxious, troubled about many things, or are you Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening and learning from him. Sit down and listen to me, Martha. Sit down, rest yourself, commune with me, fellowship with me. That's what's necessary, Martha. And that's instructive to us as well. We might be anxious and troubled about many things. Meanwhile, Jesus is sitting there just waiting on you to sit down and learn from him. Commune with him a little bit. Come away and rest a while with Jesus before you tackle what you need to tackle. There's your encouragement. One man um, summed this situation up like this. There can never be too much activity in Christian work, but there is often disproportioned activity which is too much for the amount of time given to meditation and communion. That is one reason why there is so much sowing and so little reaping in Christian work today. Wow. There's a diagnosis for you. There can never be too much work going on for the Lord, but there can be too much disproportioned work where we have not sat at the feet of Jesus enough before we tried to tackle that work, and then we wonder why there's no fruit in that work. I wonder how more we would prosper if we tried to proportion that activity better with communion with God. You know what I'm saying? How much time do we spend there? Just communing. That's, again, why I so want to encourage all of you to be a part of that prayer meeting that we have every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. That is where we together sit at the feet of Jesus and we talk to him. We go to the throne of grace together. And we listen to his word. We just tell it all to him, don't we? Oh, how we need him. 
It's not by our might or power that God works. It's by his spirit. He's the one, by the way, who grants spiritual fruit. I prayed that earlier, but we are entirely dependent on him. And if that's the case, then we need to be crying out for his help all the time, right? And what better way to do it than corporately with other believers on the Lord's Day? So I'll just say it. If you're missing out on that prayer meeting, you're really missing out. So having said all that, just just remember what I'm trying my best to, to ring out here. We're thinking about the truth that Jesus encouraged his disciples to come away with him to a private place and rest a while. He cares about them and he cares about us enough to know what we need, both physical and spiritual times of rest and reflection. So make those things a priority. Here's number three. It's so obvious in the text. Jesus emanates compassion. Look at verse 33 and 34. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So this crowd just sees Jesus head off in the boat with his disciples and maybe the wind was contrary to them that day and that gave the people a little time or maybe they were just booking it. But they ran around the body of water and beat them there on foot and anticipated where they'd be landing because they had heard what Jesus was doing and now they've heard what his apostles were doing in his name right? And they wanted to see and hear more. And here we just kind of have this hinge point of this account of this miracle. It says Jesus had compassion on the crowd. I just want you to see that Jesus emanates compassion. It pours out of him. Put yourself here in the apostles' shoes for a moment. They're tired, wore out, for ministry. They haven't slept in their own beds in quite a while. You know, they've been staying in other people's houses as they went two by two throughout all that region. They had an exciting time of ministry, no doubt, but it was busy and exhausting, and Jesus knows they need rest. And they're headed to this desolate place where they maybe they're they finally took some deep breaths and they're kind of starting to relax just a little. And then they get to the shore, and who's there? A big, expectant crowd, right? Just waiting on them. What would you be tempted to do in that situation? Maybe we'd say, thanks for coming out, y'all, but we got to get some rest. Come back tomorrow. Or maybe that would be a nice way to put it. Maybe we'd get snappy with people. Y'all got Y'all are so rude. Can't you see that we're trying to rest? Get out of here. Is that how we handle it? These people ran probably miles to meet them there. And it just says so much about Jesus to see what his attitude was toward them when he came off the boat. Was he mad at them? Was he annoyed? Was he aggravated? Was he short with them? not in the least, says he had compassion on them. And it's awesome that the scripture lets us in on his thought process there. It says the way that Jesus viewed them and thought about them was like this. To him, here stood and sat a bunch of people who were like sheep with no shepherd. And his heart went out to him. Sheep without a shepherd is not a good thing, by the way. Sheep are not the brightest animals on the farm. Um, they're not going to find good pasture on their own very well, good water. They're not going to stay out of danger very well on their own. They're not going to stay healthy on their own. 
Without a shepherd's care and oversight, they're in bad shape. And it's no wonder that the Bible compares us to sheep, is it? We need a shepherd or we will be into trouble. We will not survive very long. We'll be exposed to all sorts of dangers, just like sheep. We don't know which way to go. This one goes that way. They all just follow. There's a cliff. Well, whatever. Just go over. <laughs> it's like following is just in their instinct. But that's the way Jesus views this gathering crowd. Sheep without a shepherd. We've probably all seen somebody on TV giving an interview, a famous person. They get a crowd of people gathering around them and they don't like it. They get a little rude. They sort of push their way through, try to escape. It's not how Jesus treats people. He views them with compassion in his heart. And he sees them as people whose biggest, most major need is spiritual guidance and sound teaching. Isn't that interesting? His first reaction is to teach them. Look at the end of verse 34. And he began to teach them many things. This crowd probably needed a lot of things, right? I wonder what the so-called experts would have said they needed most. I'm not sure. But I know what Jesus thought their main need was. And he knows better than anyone. Apparently, they needed to be taught by him. We could just say it this way. They needed the gospel. Now, there's a challenge for us. How do we view people? Do we view lost people, unbelievers, as sheep without a shepherd? Do we have that kind of compassion in our hearts for people? Yes, he will um, provide for their physical needs just a little bit later. But what's their first need? It's teaching. It's his words. They need to know the truth. So that's the way we ought to view the preaching of the gospel, whether it's from a pulpit, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's your children and grandchildren sitting on your knee, whether it's one-on-one -on -one witnessing, whether it's somebody at work, that is the most humanitarian thing that we can do. What do you think of when you think of humanitarian efforts? We usually think of, well, we're going to be providing for people's physical needs, right? Food and clothing and shelter and medicine and all these things. But truly, the greatest need of humanity is spiritual. It's the gospel. There's a verse in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 that points to this. It's 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16. And Paul is talking about some of the Jews who were opposing them. And he says this. He's talking about those Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So there is a way to oppose all mankind. What is it? It's to hinder the gospel. By hindering the gospel messengers from giving God's message to them. So when a, a government does that, or any group of people do that, hinder the gospel message in any way, they are opposing all mankind, according to God. They are doing the most unhumanitarian thing they could possibly do. They're depriving people of what they need most. And uh, we know faithful Christian missionaries have long taken that view that Jesus had. They go across the globe to distant lands, and yes, they are going to try to provide for those people's physical needs as they can, but that's down the list. The first need of any people is a spiritual one. They need a Savior to rescue them from their sin. A person who's clothed and fed and 
treated medically is a person who can still go to hell if they don't know Christ. So what's more urgent there, you know? And we see it here in Jesus. This is a challenge for us to walk in the way he walked, to think the way he think, to prioritize the way he prioritized, to look at people the way he looked at them, to properly assess human needs in the order of their importance, spiritual, eternal things first. He taught them many things, it says. Apparently, that's what they needed. And I'll close with this in just a moment. This is an interesting word fact, if you will. Um, the word that's used there for compassion in verse 34, it's not used anywhere else in the Bible of anyone else besides Jesus or people in his parables that represent him or God the Father. In other words, God's compassion through Jesus is a unique type of compassion. And we have this unique word that's not used of anybody else except him. It's unlike any other. Just like his compassion. Nobody has the compassion of Jesus. Do you find that to be the case? He accepted you, didn't he? He didn't turn you away. He doesn't turn anybody away who comes to him. Jesus, we see it here. Jesus' compassion compels him to teach and to draw people to himself, to care for them in the most profound ways possible. And he hasn't changed one bit today. He's still the same compassionate Savior that he was here. Still welcoming every sinner who comes to him. Compassion still burning in his heart. I love that the answer to the problem of being a sheep without a shepherd, the Bible says, I have a shepherd for you. He's the good shepherd. It says Jesus is the good shepherd. And he lays his life down for the sheep. And so if you back off with me and just get the big picture, here's this big crowd, okay, shepherdless, aimless, in danger in multiple ways. The devil is working there, no doubt, trying to at least. And we can place ourselves there, right? We're in the crowd, Metaphorically speaking, that's us without Christ. And he looked on that crowd of humanity and he had compassion in his heart. And he desired to be our shepherd. And he wanted us to be free from our sin. And so he willingly goes to the cross, lays down his life for those shepherdless sheep. And now... Those whom he has called out, they hear his voice. The sheep know him, and he knows them. They hear his voice, and they come when he calls, and they follow him. And now all who have done that can now joyfully and worshipfully say these words. Why don't you read it slowly out loud with me, would you? Read it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our shepherd. So Jesus empathetically listens to his people. He encourages and gives rest to his people. And Jesus emanates compassion for people. We see these things leading up to the miracle he is about to perform, which we'll get to next time. But what can we say to these things except, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. We thank you, our sovereign God, for sending us your precious Son so that we might not remain shepherdless. Lord, because of your loving kindness and your mercy and your compassion, we have been made right with you through the blood of your Son. And as we see him, Lord, in in Mark's gospel, just emanating compassion for people, both to his apostles and to the crowd, Lord, may we be inspired and helped to emanate that same type of compassion to those around us, both our brothers and sisters in the family of God as well as others. And Lord, thank you for listening to us, your people. Thank you for giving us everything we need. Thank you for giving us rest. Lord, help us to be hardworking people for your glory in the things that you've given us to do. And Lord, don't let us do it disproportionately where we're just trying to do, do, do with no communion with you, with no renewal of our minds through the scriptures. Lord, let us not do that. Help us to be hard at work with properly proportioned priorities. Help us to come aside and rest with you often. Write all these truths on our heart, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.